Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm talking with Deanna Cochran. Deanna's a nurse, end-of-life guide, and trainer. She mentors pioneers in end-of-life worldwide to help them serve and empower their communities. She founded Quality of Life Care in 2005 after her mother's death to advocate for palliative care from the moment of diagnosis, regardless of diagnosis, and long before hospice is necessary. She developed Accompanying the Dying, a practical guide and awareness training, which has been featured in major media such as the New York Times, Medscape, and Austin American Statesman. Trained as an RN, Diana has served the dying and their families in various settings, mostly hospice, since the year 2000, and as an end-of-life guide and doula since 2005. She's been mentoring others since 2010. Quality of Life Care's private programs fund her public education efforts for services for those in need and her journey podcast. Her forthcoming book, Accompanying the Dying, Practical Heart-Centered Wisdom for End-of-Life Guides, Doulas, and Educators will be available soon. Welcome, Diana. Thank you. Excuse me. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Glad to have you today. I was in the car with my wife last night, and she said, oh, who are you having on tomorrow? And I said, Deanna Cochran, she's a death doula. And she said, what's that? Even though she lives with me. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> she failed to get it. So let's just start by defining death doula. And I know, you know, there are some other ways that people might have heard of similar things. So maybe you can include that as well. Yeah, um, you know, death doula, I think it's the catchy term in the last year or so, I think because it's so shocking, you know, death doula. Um, and then also it follows along with birth doula, so people understand birth doula. So death doula is a lot easier than end-of-life doula. You know, it's a little much to say end-of-life doula, but I think over the years it's been referred to as end-of-life doula mostly, and that's what's in the mainstream home uh, health and hospice and hospitals are actually picking up that term, end-of-life doula, in their programs and creating Uh programs for that. But overall, and you'll find an end-of-life doula really is a person who accompanies uh, someone and their family through um, from whenever they begin. So it could be from, um, like, usually they would come along when treatments begin to stop working through to death. So... That's the time period. Um, most people are not going to call an end-of-life doula when they are, say, early in an illness, even if it's terminal. Uh, if they're trying to beat it and, and, and live and all of that, they're not going to be calling their end-of-life doula. But these days, a lot of people, as they hear about this kind of service, end-of-life guide, end-of-life doulas, they realize that um, there is so much more, so much more support that can be had. Out, um, along with hospice. So we don't take the place of hospice. We're adjuncts to hospice. 
and there is a lot of bridge time between acute care and hospice. And even within hospice, hospice understands there are times when they are not equipped to be there all the time. So um, they're not a caregiving agency. They're a consulting agency, and they do a very good job, and they try to have uh, programs that will address not caregiving needs but uh, vigil-type needs. And they do the right. best they can, but there are times when they need more, and um, there might not be a volunteer, and doulas are there. Guides are there. So. You know, I think that's an important point because I've I've noticed over the last years as I've been teaching and talking to people about end of life and illness issues that uh, there are many, many, many people who more or less think that once they do opt for hospice, they're going to have someone there all the time to walk them through right. it, which right. is absolutely not the case. Mm-hmm. And I think that comes as a great shock to families often, and yeah. they're sort of scrambling to uh, put things in place for someone maybe, for instance, who can't be left alone, uh, right. you know, and and um, so I think that's a really important distinction to make that hospice is really about uh, all the consultative services. Yeah, uh, yeah. That you can call, but they're not going to be kind of holding your hand. Well, they can. I guess how I like to look at it is I would look at them more, maybe a handholder once in a while, but they want to they wanna make sure that everything, that you have everything you need. They do have the care, um, the CNA certified nurse assistant who will come out and do baths and some light housekeeping. And so that is something that can be done. But they're usually there 30 minutes to an hour. They're not there... Um, for any length of time that you can go, the primary caregiver can go do things or, or anybody can get a relief. It's not for that. So there's no respite with hospice and there's no caregiving. And there's some hospices um, used to have like light housekeeping that they would offer or house, actual housekeeping services. Um, I don't know if, if I've, I've seen much of that anymore, but um, yeah, hospice is about consulting and when they, they try really hard to be there uh, during imminent death, but it's not always you're not always able to do that. But if the person does have symptoms that are very difficult to manage and qualifies for a service within Medicare called continuous care, then they can have um, RN services over like a 72-hour period. So there are ways that we can utilize the private health care system that doesn't cost the family anymore and um, can step in at those times, even if there's no volunteers within hospice. But the person has to qualify for that. That's not something anyone can just have because they want it. Right. And and we're also, of course, talking about more than just the person. We're talking about a family who mm-hmm. probably has never helped anyone right. die. Right. Uh, <laughs> You know, right. depending on the age of the people, of course, right. and but uh, just knowing knowing how to resource things and what to do that emotional component, um, right? I can imagine that a that a doula would be very very helpful with in the same in the same sense that you know when you're going to give birth, you get to know your doula extremely well and. Yes. That's the person who sort of holds the ground through through the experience. 
Exactly. And that's how end-of-life guides and doulas work is they um, help in practical, emotional, spiritual ways depending on, on the person. So not all end-of-life guides and doulas support in the same way. That's one of the most powerful things about this whole um, movement. This I call it the death-positive movement of all kinds of people wanting to offer very innovative um, services, some for charge, some for volunteer, uh, uh, just all kinds of interesting, beautiful ways to support um, the community. So people are gifted in all kinds of ways, and it's not simply the roles that hospice has created to channel that desire or that calling. That's what I've seen over the last, you know, 10, 11, 12 years is people from all kinds of backgrounds want to, to be part of empowering their community, empowering other families, because for whatever reason, they know how to accompany. They either have done it, they're either gifted with it, um, and they just know what to do. They're the go-to person, you know, in their family, in their circle of right. friends. And so those people, they have all kinds of backgrounds. And, and not everybody um, is able to channel it through the roles that hospice has for you to do. And not every hospice or hospital has an end-of-life um, doula program. Not, and they have volunteer programs, for sure. But sometimes the, what people can gift isn't um, received in the volunteer program or they don't need a, an extra masseuse right now or they don't want to do acupuncture. Or they don't, you know, there's a lot of things people want to offer and give to families at this time. So, yeah, there's, uh, I find it a beautiful adjunct to hospice. You know, there are times when people need more than the hospice or the hospital can give and they bridge very nicely the gaps. Given that you said a few minutes ago, uh, everyone has something different to give. Let's talk a bit about what you yourself, how you yourself see your role when you're working with a family. I know you also train people and help them to identify their gifts. Right. Let's let's begin by talking about what you bring to that experience that that's meaningful for you in uh, as a provider. Okay. Um, for me, what usually over the years why people call me is because I used to be a hospice nurse and I did uh, done a lot of that and oh, that's my life. And so they call me because of that, even though I, I'm being called as a doula, um, now a guide. And so they call me for the nursing, but I'm doing very little nursing, very little nursing. But I think because of me knowing about the end-of-life process as well as I do because of my hospice nursing, all my years as crisis management and after hours and, you know, the whole thing, um, I know what I'm doing inside out in this time period. So I think people feel very secure and know that I'm going to guide them well during this time. Now, not every, you don't have to have that kind of background to be a beautiful companion at the end of life, um, however you want to call yourself. But for me, um, that part seems to be important because I seem to work, when I do work with families, um, I seem to get very complicated um, situations and things that my hospice background serves me very well. Also, what happens is 
we do a lot of, um, I do a lot of very interesting things that have nothing to do with nursing. Like I said, I might be um, doing things for um, after after death. I might be doing very practical things. I make, I seem to cook a lot for people. I'm a good cook, so I can just go into the kitchen and, and whip up. I don't care what's in your refrigerator. I can whip something up. They're not, they're not hiring me or having me come help them for those services, but I'm there. I'm there to make uh, things as comfortable and peaceful as possible. One of my natural inclinations is I'm a very relationship oriented. So I'm talking to the kids. I'm talking to people in the family. We do a lot of mediation kind of things between family members that are having trouble, um, uh, this one family, I remember most of the week, I, I played with the kids. And we mm-hmm. all know, I mean, those of us in the know know what I was really doing is helping the kids process. So what was sure. most important that week was proce- the children processing their mother's death. And how we did that is we played. We played in their room, dress up, colored. I was with them all week. I wasn't with anybody else. So I would go check in on the person who was dying, make sure the caregiver was okay, but... Um, I was in in the room with the kids that week. Uh, other things like that are, you know, maybe going and getting practical things. I do a lot of ceremony, ritual with people, with helping them create things that matter and are meaningful with them. And I, I really, nursing is very little of what I do. So that's the what opens the door for me usually. That's why people call me. And so given that, Perhaps there are listeners out out there who wouldn't exactly know what you're talking about when you say ritual or ceremony. For instance, I'm assuming you're not talking about a particular uh, uh, religious ceremony, or you know, I'm assuming. Oh, right. no. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm sorry. Could you no. could you fill that out a little bit for people? Yeah, what me, what yeah. like maybe give a few examples of what kind of ritual or ceremony people might uh, conduct sure. in that period? Yeah, and I'll do it with the first one that I ever did. Is because I'm not a priest or a pastor or chaplain or a shaman or you know I'm not a minister of any kind like officially. So I never felt that this would be something I'd ever do as a person who accompanies. But one of the the first times I ever did something like this is because the woman who called me, her husband, they were a young family, and her husband was dying, and she called me on a Christmas Eve, and I went out there, and uh, what she wanted was to bless the house. She wanted to clear the house and bless it. Well, I never had done anything like that. I didn't even know what to do, and I told her. I said, I'll look it up on the internet, you know, but I don't know what to do. Do you want, do you want me to do that? Or do you want me to find like a real part? Like a, I, have, I know a curandera. I know a shaman. I know a priest. I know all kinds of people who could come. And she's, no, no, no. I want you. I said, okay. I literally looked up on the internet. I found out that people use sage for clearing. I found out different ways that people did house blessings. And when I got to her, I had bought everything that I've, you know, I didn't know. I bought different things. And I said, how would you like to, to, to do the house blessing? What would be meaningful to you? And let's create that together because she wanted to do it with me. So we decided what we would do. And we said prayers as we walked through the house. And we uh, smudged the house with the beautiful smelling sage. And um, it was wonderful. And, we, and it was very powerful because it was our intention of just, 
blessing the space there for him to die peacefully, blessing the people that came into the house, into each room, that only positives and beautiful memories would be created, that peace would be had. All of those beautiful prayers and intentions that cross all kinds of religions. Anybody would be happy to, to say any of that. So it's, it's really human. It's just a human longing for meaning, for um, peace, for clearing, for... You know, and maybe hope. for maybe for a container as well. I, I'm I'm mm-hmm. thinking back to when my wife died, and I mm-hmm. I feel as if she was in a coma for a week, maybe even ten days. I didn't write mm-hmm. it down, so I can't say for sure. But it was over mm-hmm. a week, and I would call that period of time basically. I'd have to call it ritual space, but it was yeah. all made up in the moment. Yeah, and um, but there was a clarity. Uh, yeah. I mean, I sort of felt I knew exactly what would be good for her. Uh, yeah. and, and it sounds like this woman was having that type of experience. Yeah. And honestly, I hadn't had an experience quite as certain as that in my life very often before that time. Wow. wow. It was just a very, very certain, uh, this is what we're going to do kind of place. Yeah, and that's exactly what it felt like, Cheryl. It felt like she had her purpose and what she wanted, and I was. Uh, she used me to help her, so it wasn't important. I wasn't the one. I was. Yeah, I wasn't the one she was looking for the power from. She had her own empowerment. She had her own thing. She just wanted help doing it, and it was okay uh-huh. that it was me who didn't know. And so maybe permission on, a little bit. So let's take our first break and come back and talk about that just a bit more because that whole idea of of people kind of thinking in terms of allowing themselves that kind of experience seems important to me. And listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America to find my Facebook, Twitter, etc., my email and my website. And you can find Deanna Cochran at www.qualityoflifecare.com Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues, anxious, parenting challenges, no more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. 
Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Deanna Cochran, a de- uh, end-of-life doula and author of Accompanying the Dying, Practical Heart-Centered Wisdom for End-of-Life Guides, Doulas, and Educators. And Deanna, before the break, we we were uh, talking about that for, I, ho- I hope this word won't offend people, but the kind of sacred nature of that space when someone is dying, uh, uh-huh. having Having given birth and been there when a few people have died, there's a very uh-huh. similar feeling to me. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, very, very different at the end, <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, yeah. But, but during off. that process, yeah. so similar. And we were talking about uh, this kind of impulse towards meaning making and and ritual. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. When people are not so comfortable with that, when they're having that impulse, but, you know, the woman you were describing uh, just felt so certain what she needed to do, and yeah. she she used you as her uh, her right-hand person, in a way. Yes, that's exactly um, what that was, yes. Do you find that sometimes, although people are having that sort of impulse, they have a harder time saying yes to it? Well, um, what I find these days, because that was a long time ago, um, what I find these days is I can feel when there's an unsettledness um, going on, there's something lacking that you can you can feel. That's part of the discernment of an end-of-life guide, in my opinion. That's what I teach anyway, is part of our job is to sit and, and mostly be quiet and um, listen discern what's needed, what's going on, what, how, what, what, what do they want to happen, what do they feel is most important. Now, what do you feel is most important, too? Is it the same thing? You go with what the family wants. And so what you see them, when I feel that they are needing something more and they just can't put their finger on it, sometimes, a lot of times it has to do around meaning, issues around meaning, issues around bringing um, more sacred space, if you want to call it that, um, because maybe they're blaring, when people come over, somebody's blaring the TV or their, their cell phone or their, it's just not, they're not creating enough of that in what's going on. So some people want to formalize it more like this woman did with um, a house busing and maybe have more of a, uh, some kind of formalized prayers or things. Some other people just want to, create that in the environment 
around the person where it's um, like this particular area of the house, we're going to be more quiet. We're going to not bring our cell phones. We're not going to have Jerry Springer on, you know, we're going to have more um, sacred moments and quiet moments, maybe two at a time, maybe just different things that mark this place and this time as um, different, much different than what's going on in the rest of the house. And so some people want to do it in uh, different ways. And um, like when, when this, when we did the house blessing, she called it a house blessing. Um, but once we did that, the rest of our time together, there were, uh, she built an altar. It was really beautiful. She built an altar. So she, we would kind of go before that during, throughout the time together and add things or just sit there and be together. But it was on her guidance with all of that. When I've worked with other people that didn't guide it like that, I went with what they talked to me about. I could see where they were still longing and I would suggest, and it usually always would come into some type of ritual or ceremony or creating sacred space. Always. It, it just naturally went there. So it could be as simple as candle. It could be as simple as cleaning up an area and making it more um, quiet and peaceful. It could be with sound. It could be with lighting. So I love this part of things. I love helping people feel special and um, really tuning into what that person loved. And um, and so that's what I did. I do with a lot of people is what were their favorite smells? What are you know the favorite things they love to have around them? Um, just tying in this what makes them them with um, the memories of the person who's there tending to them so lovingly, and bringing that together. So it's the so there's so much. That people people remember everything during this time. The ones that are left behind remember every moment. And those of us that aren't afraid of this time period can be so helpful to people who are afraid by being there, listening, and doing these kinds of things with them. Suggesting is it something that would feel good if we did this or that. And if they jump right in and say, "Oh gosh, yes, well, let's do it," if there's hesitancy, I say no. I won't even go there because I don't want to add to the discomfort of what people are experiencing. And you don't know what people might want until the time comes. Absolutely. And then I can, I can also imagine, for instance, um, a vast majority of people resonate with some type of music. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's sometimes the way people can kind of, be in themselves and uh, and also giving to the person without feeling awkward like they're doing mm-hmm. something strange mm-hmm. <laughs> because singing right. is not seen as strange. Right, right. And then there's the woman, I remember when I was sharing on my pro page on Facebook, I was sharing this beautiful bedside singers, everybody loves, let's say 99% or 98% of people love the bedside singer idea and they love the songs that this fun woman wrote. The Threshold the Choir, right? I think it was The Threshold, but it was beautiful, uh-huh. absolutely beautiful. And she wrote on there, oh my God, don't you, don't, anybody, everybody who knows me, please don't ever do this for me. I, I would uh-huh. not do anything that happened. And I was like, I couldn't believe anybody wouldn't love that. But you know that we have to know who we're helping and who we're 
loving through Absolutely. dying. Absolutely. Know? Yeah, yeah, and that's why I was so cautious in the way I said that, that the vast majority of people, but I've yes. certainly encountered people that that would be the worst thing. The and worst thing sometimes not even because they don't resonate with music, but because they wouldn't want that much focus of attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because to have a group of strangers singing for you is a very attentive activity. Yes. And, and two, I've been, you know, I'm starting to get people who want to talk with me who are totally fine. They don't have any illness. They're young. Um, the last family I had, uh, the, the husband and wife were in their early 60s, nothing wrong with them. And they just wanted me to, to we did their vigil plan, basically, created their vigil plan. And she told me everything she wanted and didn't want if she should... Um, you know, start to die without any notice or warning, how she wanted me to help her husband, um, what she wanted me to do uh, for her if he was dying, what, how she would probably, like she wanted all of those plans and, and not even advanced directives. We're talking vigil plans. And so we uh-huh. said all of that. And what she told me, which really was interesting to me, she said, I don't want people staring at me. So please make sure that when people come in, I don't want them staring at me. They can come in. They can do a prayer. They can hold my hand. And I'm like, oh, beautiful. Thank you for for giving me that piece of information. Because how many people would say that or would stop? Like, you would never stop somebody from looking at their loved one because it's the last time they're going to see them and they're going to want to look and they're going to want to take them in. But that's her wish. So I know the people that love her will want to know that. Absolutely. And I think we're also a bit in the area of what what isn't addressed by things like advanced directives. Uh, you know, it's a, it's usually a very limited statement. Something yeah. like that, you would have to add on your own. You wouldn't be prompted well, that's not necessarily to to uh, write down yeah. what kind of atmosphere you would like to have if well, you're dying. I'm talking about that that wouldn't be in your advanced directives. That's wait it's a whole other thing. It, it would be it would be like a pre death vigil plan. That's totally different than advanced directives. It's a level of detail that would never be on your advanced directives. Exactly. Advanced directives, and and I yeah. think that you know I'm grateful for the fact that people are uh taking uh advanced directives, you know, doing them more than they Mm -hmm. used to. But Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it feels as if people think, okay, now I've got that covered, when actually the way most people are going to die is not covered by that. And and the things we're talking about, uh, what would you like people to do or not do? Um, How would you like them to treat you? You know, uh, those things are mm-hmm. really much more, having been with people when they're dying, much more crucial mm-hmm. to know, in a way. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're right. Yeah. And so meaning- I guess we're encouraging people to think about that, if they can, you know, if they can. You know, how do yeah. you want people to behave if you're dying? And, and I'll have those lists in my book, too. I have a pre-death vigil uh, like list and I have a post-death vigil list of things to think about. Um, if I don't have it in my book, I, I, I write this second. I'm not looking. I'm pretty sure I have it in there, but if not, I'd be happy to send anybody that template. 
Um, oh, they so can get in touch with me, and I'll be happy to send it yeah. on. You can send yeah. it to me, and I'll send it to whoever would yeah. like, since yeah. they can get yeah. to my, uh, totally. you know, my yeah. contact easily sure. through the through sure. the page at Voice America. Um, so I wanted to shift gears a little bit because okay. this is a show about transformation through loss, uh, okay. and. Uh, virtually no one, well, I've met one, maybe two people in my lifetime who were drawn to this type of work, uh, completely lacking any personal experiences of loss, but it's mm-hmm. very unusual. And so mm-hmm. I that leads to a natural question. What do you think led you in this direction in your life to spend time most of your working time in end-of-life care? You know, um, the only thing I, when I backtrack on my ahas and my big, huge, this is what I'm going to do, and that pure joy that comes from knowing that, um, the last time that hit me was when my mom died and I realized everyone needs a hospice nurse for a daughter. I remember thinking that thought, thought, everyone needs a hospice nurse for a daughter. It's not fair mm. that she got to have me. And there's like too many people with no direction. Even even medical people, I can't tell you how many medical people I've cared for in their families. Um, they're in the dark when it comes to end of life for the most part, unless they're in end of life. <laughs> you know? Well, and uh, many yeah. medical people are actively... Uh, warding off any thought of that. Well, sure, I think and it makes sense. Go into yeah. medicine for different reasons, but exactly. certainly one of them is denial of death. So, well, I, it's not their thing, and but don't put me in the ER room. You know, like I can't, I could never do what they do. You know, so I think it's just, you know, so that was the one time I knew that that's what propelled this whole um, wanting to educate about palliative care being. Um, appropriate and assess, should be accessible for a moment of diagnosis. And I knew that in my heart before I knew it was a movement in, it, in its own, which in 2005, I never heard of anything like that. And it should, should have already heard of it because I'd already worked on oncology floors where it wasn't. I already had been in hospice for years, already had taken care of so many people um, who had been suffering for months, years, days, year, you know, weeks, too long. And just because they came on hospice today, now they're not suffering anymore because most of the time we can take care of them and turn that around within a day. And I used to cry. I used, I'm not a crier. It wasn't, I am now. I cry all the time. But used to, I never was a crier. And I used to cry a lot because I would go, why is this happening? Why are people suffering like this? And we can turn them around so easily in hospice because of this medicine we use. Why isn't it being used before? Anyway, so when my mom died, she didn't want hospice, and she didn't get on hospice until 10 days before her death, like most people. she Her imminent death was on hospice, but her dying was not on hospice. Had she not been with me, she would have probably spent most of her time in the hospital because gastrointestinal cancers are terrible and they can cascade out of control very quickly. And I didn't have the perception to deal with her on that kind of a level 
by myself. She was my mom. I was all emotionally wrapped up. So we had quite a team around us with me, my sister, her friend, another hospice nurse friend, the doctors, everybody doing their part. We created our own palliative care team without realizing that's what we were doing. And my mom didn't spend one day in the hospital. And that's what kicked off the last 12 years is that. Before that, though, why I got into hospice, I don't even know what to say. I was in nursing school and in second semester, and they said there was 40 of us, and there were two spots for hospice um, rotation. It was community time, and I had to have one of those spots. I just knew it. I just had to, and I didn't know why, but I would have begged, borrowed, stole anything to get one. And there were other people who vouched for me, too, said she needs to have that. And I don't know why, because all I did was twirl and doodle during class. I was so bored, and I hated nursing school. And when that came up, I knew I had to have it. (laughs) So that's sort of like, um, I don't know, intuitive luck in a way. Yeah. That you were that you were exposed and it rang and 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 then you go forward with with this calling. So you are yeah. one of those unusual people, although it took a different turn when you had, uh, you know, your own experiences. Yeah. That's fascinating. Now, too, the other thing that I think helped or why maybe this happened for me that way, I grew up, my family is Mexican-American, and I grew up, my, my grandmother's from Mexico, all my father, my father's, all of my father, all my uncles and everybody was first born and the first time, what is it, first American and um, uh, first-born Americans, and they all took care of each other. And you take care of your own. Everybody's dying. You take care of them. My grandmother took me to my first vigil when I was 13. I didn't know where we were going. It wasn't a big deal. She just said, get your shoes. Let's go. Let's go to the vigil. It was the woman who sold us candy my whole life, Serapita. She was dying. I didn't know she was dying. I was 13. She was dying. My grandmother was the one who took care of everybody um, in the neighborhood and life and everywhere. She was flown everywhere to help everybody. And she said, let's go. When we were walking to go into the room where she was dying, all the ladies were with the veils. I could feel the energy that you're talking about. Like there's a different space around people when they're birthing and when they're dying. And I could feel it before we walked in. And I knew she was dying before we walked in, but I didn't know, but I knew. And so I remember feeling so important and I remember feeling so, so special that I was Mm. invited to something like this. I felt like there was some kind of meaning of, I just felt important for the, for almost for the first time in my life. Um, Well, then it didn't come from nowhere. (laughs) After the break, let's go back to talking about that. That's such a beautiful experience. And to me, what I hear in it is that, there was something in your environment that made it very clear to you that the way that most people were approaching that experience was missing something um, because you had experienced the alternative. So let's talk about that more when we get back. And listeners, you can go find us at my website, weatheringgrief.com, at the Voice America page for Good Grief, and Deanna Cochran at www.qualityoflifecare.com. Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. 
Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I've been talking with Deanna Cochran, uh, an end-of-life doula. And, uh, Deanna, right before the break, uh, we were talking about that experience when you were 13 and your grandmother took you when she went to attend uh, someone in the community who was dying. And I was saying to you during the break, so amazing that when when this experience happened in nursing school... And you knew you had to do hospice, uh-huh. Uh-huh. that you didn't necessarily think, oh, yeah, I remember, uh, you know, uh-uh. there, w- there was a seed planted, uh-huh. I think, that resulted uh-huh. in that moment. And who knows how your grandmother uh-huh. chose you. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, because know. It, there may have been, I don't know if it was just there was no one to take care of you and you had to go or, <laughs> you know, you had I to go along or whether it was, uh, you know, more intentional. But nonetheless, um, I, I, I was recalling uh, a friend who I do um, arts grief workshops with I do the music part and there's a writer Uh and there are a couple of artists and she does um, uh, I guess shrines Uh I guess we'd say she creates shrines of various kinds with people and the Uh first time we met to talk about it she'd been in a social worker in hospice for decades and when Uh we were each saying what what brought us to the work she said Uh I have no idea And Uh then the next time we met, she told the story of, I think it was 10 or 12 people that died when she was in high school, high school, Um, close people like friends, people in Uh her age group, you know, and she was like, I can't believe it. How did I not connect those two? Uh So sometimes we're Uh not, we're not functioning uh, on a cognitive level. It's much more intuitive. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. My grandmother and I were, were very connected. She didn't speak much English. I didn't speak much Spanish, but we were very deeply connected. And 
my own family was going through trauma at the time. And so um, I was very capable. I was laying on the couch. She could have left me there. There's no reason that she would have brought me there other than an intuitive on knowing on her part, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and that she didn't make me dress up. I was wearing jean shorts and a t-shirt. She didn't make me go get changed. Um, she just said, get your shoes on. My flip-flops were there. And I'll never forget it. We're walking down a rocky road. The roads weren't paved then in her street. And we walked down a rocky road in my flip-flops. I was wondering where I was going. <laughs> and she, and there we were. And no preparation for this, none. She didn't try to explain anything. And I'll never forget the shift that happened to me walking through the house. It's like I didn't know when we walked in the door what was we were going. But I knew as we walked through the house, I could feel it change inside of me. And by the time we, because it was a long process to get to the back, it's all these um, additions to the house. And it kept getting slower and the slope was going down and down and down. And um, by the time we got to the very back where she was, I knew what was happening. But it was all in internal or spiritual or intuitive, as you say. So um, that's yeah, that's an amazing that. bedrock kind of experience, it, <laughs> for sure. Was, for sure. And then my tias, they they had me help them take care of my grandmother as she died. After my grandmother died, I took care of my my tias as they died. So I was taking care and being shown the ways all my life. So it's like I didn't even put that together either. It's just that, you know, I was a mother, I was married, I was this, I was that, I was going to school, and then this rotation comes up, and I think it's out of nowhere, but really, what you, I agree with you. It's just, you know, so it's such in contrast of what I grew up learning and what maybe I experienced in the, uh, in the ensuing 20 years or so, and then here I am knowing that's what I need. And then when I went on the rotation with that nurse, I call her the MacGyver nurse of, of, of hospice because she could have, that couldn't have been with a better nurse. She told mm-hmm. me how she went to Home Depot and adjusted things for people, created things. Like she was more of an occupational therapist than anything because she would adjust the, the things they could use, you know, the fun, their, people's functioning, you know, declines as they die, and she would adjust things for them and make things for them, and she really considered what was going on with them and went way beyond for them, and she set the stage for me. So I, I'm so grateful to her, and um, she was an older well, woman that I'm so happy. You know, that's, that's interesting because there's a kind of permission in that, and uh, what I noticed since I'm a... Th- a therapist in general practice, although I, I love my grief work and my illness work the most. Um, mm-hmm. There's something in end of life that um, it doesn't, end of life care doesn't work very well if the boundaries are too strict. Exactly. Thank you. Uh, Thank I, you I, I find myself acting very differently in that circumstance mm-hmm. than, than others. And mm-hmm. and she kind of modeled that for you, didn't she? Mm-hmm. She certainly did. And it's not an unhealthy uh, lack of boundary. Yeah, there's unhealthy lack of boundaries, but it's not the same. You're right. If there's something different there, um, and it's good. It's good. It's a connection. It's uh, really listening, deeply listening, and it's doing. It's advocacy. It's uh, discernment. Um, there's no rule book. There, there's sort of a rule book. Like, just don't say these stupid things. Like, there's kind of like a <laughs> and don't say stupid things. But outside yeah. of that, you know, it's 
go with your, if you're taking care of yourself, this is my huge, huge thing with um, people in my program. If you're taking care of yourself and taking care of yourself in a serious way, spiritually, emotionally, physically, every way, might not be perfect at it, but you definitely, it's part of your plan, then you're going to trust. You can trust that intuitive voice that comes in the moment and you can go with it. If you're not taking care of yourself, you're kind of disconnected, you're cut off, you question everything because you're not connected. So it sounds simple, but it's maybe a simple thought, but it's, you know, people spend a lifetime um, doing their, um, whatever their self-care is, becoming better listeners, becoming to themselves first so that you can hear others. And caring for your own heart. You can care for others. We can only go as far down and deep with people as we're willing to go with ourselves. Otherwise, then people start getting all nervous and chattery and laughing and inappropriate (laughs) when somebody's grieving, you know? So um, it's super important if you're called to serve people while they're dying and their families that you don't have to be perfect at it. You don't have to be able to dive deep with everybody. You can only go as far as you go, but to be very aware and conscious of that. Um, yeah. Got to care for I, You know, there's a kind of paradox in it that I find, too, that uh, it, it's completely unhelpful to be an expert in that totally. circumstance. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or the one that knows. Totally. On mm-hmm. the other hand, it's quite important to trust what you do know. Uh, I find it a bit of a paradox sometimes. Well, the thing is, though, if you're the person who's being called to assist, called to companion, know your place. Your place is a companion, not an expert. So that's what uh, we talk a lot about. That's like one of the basic premises of my work is we walk alongside. You know, yeah, I've been to probably a lot more um, bedsides of the dying than most people, you know, and, but every time I go to a place and go with somebody and be there, that's the first time I've been there. And I come with that beginner's mind and heart and I'm curious. And I think if people stay there and just listen and then you're not the expert, you're not coming with your bag of tricks and you're not coming with your template of what needs to happen. That's, you're right, totally the wrong way to go about it. Um, it's, there, there's no, in my opinion, no right way to be a doula. Like there's no doula template, you know, there's, yes. uh, how are you a person who's comfortable accompanying others and how do you want to gift them? Um, what do you have to share? How do you want to help assist, walk with whatever and know some basic things, um, like stay quiet most of the time. Don't share your time, your experience with them. Like, I know that there's some people out there who think, well, it helps people when you share that you've been there too. Well, not so much at this time, you know? There's a mm-hmm. burden of they don't need to hear your grief because they're grieving so hard. Like, say the, I'm, I'm thinking of a parent, primary caregiver. Um, she doesn't need to know that I've had the same pain that she's had right now when their person's still alive and dying and she's going through all this grief. She just needs me to listen to her. And, and yet her you face. need to know you have and come with that vulnerability, I find. Uh, that what? If I'm trying to avoid it inside, it doesn't work so well either. Mm-mm. Exactly. 
Well, we just have a couple of moments left. And uh, I do want to just emphasize that you uh, have a training program. And it sounds as if your training program teaches people how to be in themselves and listening well more than anything. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, um, really guides them in their own process of where they came from, how they got here, because that's what's going to trip them up when they're trying to promote the peaceful death, the, the best death possible. Like, the, what gets people into this a lot is they want to create a beautiful dying experience for people, and that's the very thing that will mess them up. That's the very thing that will make it all not okay. So it is, it, everything is a paradox. You know, whatever, if you are attached to the outcome of this beautiful death, and you're going to try to make that happen, that's not the way it will happen. Because then you're attached to it. You're trying to make things, you know, maybe um, inappropriately so. But if we go curious with um, that mindset of being a companion, walking alongside with them, and and trust that discernment because we're taking care of ourselves, being with them, then we're going to hear what needs to to go on, what they need help with, what they want assistance with how they want to, and you'll see where they need to be empowered. And empowering people gently is a whole lot different than telling them what to do. Indeed. So there's all of that to it. It's, it's, it's beautiful work when people really are called to do this. Um, that's what we learn and spend years in hospice learning. That's the gift of, of as employees of hospice. Um, we get to journey with people and we learn this you know, through working with so many people. I mean, volumes and volumes and lots and lots and lots of people. And we learn what we did that in, through the team experience, what worked, what didn't work, where we messed up. But as people at end-of-life guides and end-of-life doulas, they're out there by themselves. And so they're not getting that kind of feedback from a group. So I really, really encourage people who are wanting to do this and they want to do it on their own, to really find a community and, and some accountability and uh, self, um, you know, a self-care program process that takes care of their own mind, body, spirit, uh, really develop their own team because mm. this isn't like a Lone Ranger thing at the same right. time. I'm going to I'm going to have to oh. we're going to have to end it there for today. Oh, I just hope okay. all of us end up having someone to walk with us the way that you're describing, Deanna, and I want to thank you very much for being here today. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And you can find Deanna Cochran at www.qualityoflifecare.com. Next week I'll have Redwing Kazar, author of Last Acts of Kindness. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. 